So I, I'm listening to this uh, movie uh, that I saw recently, actually, I guess watching it. The uh, Friends of the Israel Defense Force, FIDF, put on this great uh, movie. It's a documentary called Beneath the Helmet. It's a movie, a documentary, about Israeli soldiers who are coming from high school into the army, the Israeli army. They're drafted into the army. Now, mind you, in Israel, everyone must serve in the army, including the girls. For boys, it's three years required, and for girls, it's two years required. If you want to be an officer, in either case, you have to have one more year. So four years for the boys, three years for the girls. And it's something that they all look forward to. You know, there's some trepidation, of course, but the cohesiveness, the bonds that you develop, uh, it's about 10 times greater than any fraternity in any college that you would ever be in. So imagine the, the good fraternity that you can possibly think of and, and all the good benefits that come from a fraternity, <clears throat> that kind of you know, alliance, that connection that you have, and multiply it 10 times, and that's the feeling that you get when you join uh, the Israeli army. <clears throat> and the cohesiveness is really wonderful. And, and this movie, this documentary, takes the lives of basically five of these young boys and chronicles their uh, boot camp experience, basically. It's a 205-day uh, lapse of time. It starts off the first day and ends with the 205th day. And you see how these boys all grow. And you learn about the backgrounds and all their frustrations and concerns. And, of course, even the concerns that their parents had. And uh, they, they go you know, back home for R&R and everything else. And you see in one case uh, there's an Ethiopian Jewish uh, boy that, that uh, is also in the army. And he's got uh, some massive debt problems because his family can't take care of a lot of issues. Uh, and he has to take care of it. <clears throat> And it's a more of a struggle for him. So the rest of the whole uh, group that, that he's with, they all manage a way to find a donor to, to take care of all of his debts. It's a very touching scene. And he, in turn, is so grateful and even more bonded now in, in brotherhood with the rest of the, uh, the team. And, and they're smiling, and you see their successes, and you, you really feel like, like you're part of them. It's, it's just totally cool. Why do I bring this up? Because throughout the movie... There were many times they kept on saying, uh, you see them going through the process. They go to this or that different location in Israel to understand what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be an Israeli soldier and how they are part of a chain of all the generations before them that preceded them, that now they are the army, that they are the defense of Israel, that Israel's counting on them. Without them, there will be no Israel. <clears throat> and it's a wonderful depiction. You can, you can, they actually sense it at some point. They say, I realize now that I am Israel, that Israel's counting on me, that but for us, Israel would be annihilated in seconds. It's, it's really powerful. And, and they go to the Western Wall to, to appreciate the religious element to it, but also the historical part of it. They go to a major graveyard uh, in the Mount Olives, I believe it is, in Jerusalem to see the fallen there. Um, to re really appreciate the history of it. And constantly the, the brigade officers are saying, now we need to teach them, you know, we've taught them what they are here for, now we need to teach them why they are here. And it's really compelling. And I love that. 
And you know me, I always like to talk about comparisons. So I compare naturally to our own country, America. Not just the army, but our, our culture at large. And how deeply steeped we are in the erasing of history in America. Erasing. In, in, in Israel, they know their history really well. In fact, they know American history better than most Americans do. That's how well they know history. Without history, these Israelis know <clears throat> that uh, you can't possibly have a good army. You can't. And this is what these Israeli kids are all about. And when you see them fighting, and, and as you see, for example, during the recent Gaza war, you see the, you know, the, the random footage of, some, of this or that soldier kind of passing by, but all of them seem dedicated. Not one of them says, I can't stand this idea and I'm against this war or anything else. There's no conscientious objector in the same way that you would have here. They are a team. Why? Because they understand why they are there. They understand how they are critical to the survival of Israel itself. And when you understand that purpose, how could you not be excited to be part of that? How can you not at least appreciate that you must do what you must do? The responsibility is a heavy burden on your shoulders, a lot heavier than the 60 or so pounds that they have to carry on this one particular hike that they take. An extraordinary story, and I loved it. Now, by contrast, <laughs> time and time again, and I think you brought this up, Ari, offline, that in the American Army, not only do they not teach history, as part of the whole process of being a soldier. I, I am to understand that they actually actively fight the idea of teaching history. And why that's so? Mystery to me. You would think that you would want your soldiers to be as excited about being soldiers as, as they possibly can, right? To motivate them. And morale is the most important thing you can have in a soldier. But if the only reason why a soldier is fighting is because he's there to help out his fellow soldier. That's, that's, not a good, that's not a good reason. You need to give him purpose. And, and it needs to be accurate. It needs to be right. But if you don't have purpose, then there really is no reason to, to fight. You know, you're, you're, hopefully you're not doing it just for the paycheck, right? I mean, the risk is so high. You know, what, for the risk of being killed... You'd expect that their salary would be huge. But it's not huge, of course. It's scraps when you compare it to what it should be, right? Given the, the risk that they're taking. And also, of course, being away from their families for so long and such. So why would you do it? And the truth is that it is a challenge to find really great people to go into the Army. And, and, and by the way, God bless every one of you who are in the Army now. I, I, I kiss you all. It is a thankless job. Uh, it, is, it is a job that needs to be done. And perhaps you do have a sense of your own personal history, of, of American history, and why you need to be part of it. I get that. But I doubt that it's coming from the government itself. And it should be. Uh, when I, just, just recently I was on a plane flight, and I, this very lovely uh, Christian lady sat next to me. And we got to talking at some point. She was young. She's 27 or so. Sweet girl. Uh, she was a paralegal in a firm. 
and we got to talking a little bit about things, and somehow it came to be that uh, I asked her the question that I ask a lot of people her age. Here it is. I say, listen, this is not a trick question, what I'm about to ask you. I want you to know that. It's not a trick question. I just want you to, to answer, what year did America become a free country, an independent nation? And you know, she didn't know. She said, uh, late 1800s? And I said, you have no idea, do you? <clears throat> she said, no, none. Do you know, have you heard about the Revolutionary War? She said, yeah, something about that. I, I think there was a revolution. Yeah, there was. <laughs> uh, and I, it's July 4th. You, you know that that's an important date, right? Yes, that's, uh, that's Independence Day. And, and she asked me, is that, the, is that the day that we became an independent country? I said, yes, that's the date of the year. Do you know what the year is? She couldn't tell. Even when I said July 4th, blank. <laughs> so I finally told her that it's 1776 and, and hope that that may resonate something for her. And she, she drew a blank. She, and I said, doesn't 1776 even sound familiar to you? No, not at all. And this is, this is a bright woman. I mean, it's not as if she had an accent and where she maybe emigrated from another country and she's working only here for two years or something. She's a, she was born here. Um, Just no one bothered no to one teach bothered. her. Yeah. That's what's scary. Now, <clears throat> in case you think this is only an anecdotal thing, I'll tell you that I've actually asked this question almost to every every um, uh, male or female in their 20s, good for today. So anyone who is 20 years old to 30 years old, basically, I ask them that question, and I say it just the same way. I'm gonna ask you a question. It's not a trick question, okay? It's supposed to be an easy question, actually. So don't, don't think I'm trying to fool you or anything else. Just when did America become an independent country? <clears throat> and, and that's the same thing, time and time again. I would say that only one out of every 20 responses does somebody get it right. One out of every, I'm, and I'm, I'm being conservative here in my estimate. I'm, uh, sorry, I'm being generous in my, my estimate. I think it's less, it's my, like one out of every 25. But it's, it's shocking to me. How can this country survive if it doesn't have any sense of itself? You're robbing this country of its very purpose, of who it is. So, I mean, it's, it's a bit like saying, you know, raising some kids and then basically taking away all their memory and then telling them, you know, go ahead and survive on your own. I would actually phrase it the other way. Sure. How would the nation not fall if the education establishment has set out to erase these things from the collective memory on purpose, which they have? There's yeah. an article um, uh, I, one of the conservative sites we discuss frequently, and it talked about a kindergarten teacher who was bragging about how she indoctrinates four- and five-year-olds by teaching kindergarten and, and uh, uh, preschool to them to indoctrinate them into being tolerant of same-sex marriage and the homosexual lifestyle, and in fact, encouraging as many of them as possible to turn out <laughs> gay later in life. And wow. what, what stood out, uh, th that on its face is, is bad enough, but 
in comparing it to what you were just saying, I remember the reason I know July 4th, 1776, is because I learned it in kindergarten in the first grade. Yeah. So for everything you add to curriculum, it means there's something you're taking out of curriculum. Right. It's so, like the famous line of the professor who, who, who taught uh, about uh, fish uh, biology or something. He, he would say, every time I, I learn the, the name of a new student, I forget the name of one of my fish. <laughs> Right, it's it's a zero sum game to some extent. At some point, it's a zero sum. There's game. only so much time in a school day. That's exactly. So that's right. why. Yeah. And but the point is that revealed exactly why this is happening and that it's deliberate. Yeah. A lot of the themes we talk about on your show here is is deliberate versus accidental, and this is one where it's clearly not accidental. Well, uh, look, I mean, I don't even want to get into the issue of whether it's accidental. It, it may not matter because, like I said, even a, even a dog. Uh, I mean, the dog may understand the difference between being kicked and being stepped over, right? But it may not matter. He's still being kicked, <laughs> right? So the, the point is that whether it's accidental or on purpose, it's destroying the country. Yes. Now, if it's on purpose, you know, then, then we got to do something to, to stop this. Um, and that's part of this mission here, this podcast and otherwise, that we must teach history. History is an essential, not just unessential, but the most essential subject that you can teach a child. And of course, accurate history we're talking about. And for God's sake, teach the, the history of your own friggin' country. Otherwise, what, what's the point? And without history, you have no sense of happiness either. I mean, putting that aside, you know, I mean, I'm saying this parenthetically, you, you really can't have true happiness if you don't know where you came from, right? Think, think about this, right? How can you appreciate the joys of all that America has to give and where you have what you have in life without understanding what it was like before right we you, you know I like to tell my kids who are you know fairly young to, to say you think you have it bad now huh yeah yeah well how would you like to live in a hut how would you like to have a, a place with no telephone no running water you'd have to you'd have to you know see poop and smell poop all day long how would you like that how would you like to not have any school at all to never be able to go into a car to travel to see your relatives and have fun. How about that? Yeah, one of the left's great constructs is the concept, the good old days. Yeah. Which implies that generations of yore had it so much better than us. Right, that's the false history. Yes. But what they would like to do, and, and to use your phrase, Ari, uh, they would like to employ a, a year zero approach to it, uh, such that, you know, this is the way it always was. And boy, if you don't have everything, you should really be griping quite a bit. <clears throat> so complain away, my my friend. <laughs> you've got you've got rights, don't you know? Uh, and you've been uh, thwarted. You you know your your entitlements are not being met. And, and this is the mentality. But if they understood the history, they'd they'd be so giddy. They should be giddy to experience all the joy that there is. Uh, speaking of which, uh, a, an acquaintance more, more than an acquaintance, but not quite a friend of mine. Uh, in 1990, uh, he killed himself. You know, it, by all measures, you, to look at him, he seemed to have everything going for him. Very good-looking guy. You know, engaged to another friend of mine. That's how I knew him. Um, and uh, you know, he had a good teaching job. Uh, was you know, you know, climbing in the ranks of the teaching world. And one day, just threw himself over a bridge. And he he wrote. In a suicide letter, he did have a suicide letter. He said, uh, I just don't see the point. I don't see any purpose. And ironically, I think he was a history teacher. 
Um, <laughs> Obviously not a good one. <clears throat> not, not, a, not a good one. He, either an English teacher or a history teacher. But I, I can tell you he had no true sense of history. Uh, because I, I did talk to him many times, and it was, it was clear he didn't understand history, at least our history. He might have been a social studies sort of guy, which doesn't it's not really history. And I, I just, it always dawned upon me at that point, like, had he truly appreciated where he was, all the goodies that he had in life, being born here, we talked about this before, being born in America at this time in history is so, is so phenomenally unlikely that you should be giddy with excitement, as if you won the lottery, right? That that because moment. Because you did. Yeah, exactly. Because you did. Right. So true. And you should you feel as giddy about it every moment, just as you would feel that very moment that you learned that you won the lottery, forever. I mean, the the, the person who wins the lottery, for example, hundred million dollars, let's say, right? He's extremely ecstatic the first five minutes and maybe the first day, but then. You know, guess what? He kind of ebbs Gets back used to, it. to where yeah. it was, and and it becomes the regular Joe Joe Schmo that he is, and that promptly wastes it all for whatever reason. Um, you get the idea. History is what this is all about today. History, and I, <clears throat> I, I dare say uh, that without history, you'll never be happy, and I, I dare say that without history you can never have a country survive. That is the beginning of the end when you ignore history. Or have lost your history. Yeah. Yeah. Purposefully or not. Yeah. Just however it happens. If you've lost it, it's done. That's right. And, and that's where we are. That's where we are. Um, you know, I, I wonder uh, if this is going to continue on. If this, you know, what else are they not going to be teaching my children? But I can tell you one thing. <laughs> all, my, all my kids know right now, as young as they are, that America became a free country in 1776, that, that uh, George Washington was the first president of the United States, that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and was a great president too, and that Ronald Reagan also ended the Cold War. And they have a great appreciation from where we came. I, I also talk to them about the Greeks and the Romans and all the empires. I tell them about the Jewish history and how uh, we fought against these empires who tried to change who we were and tried to destroy, destroy our God and how we outlived and outsurvived them all. And I gave them a sense of great pride. What better way can you give to a young child uh, a sense of, People talk about the self-esteem movement. What, what greater esteem and perspective can you give a child than to give them a great sense of history, right? Do you do that with your kids? Of course. Yeah. Of course. And uh, uh, even, even more, you know, we hear in the, in the broader culture of America how bitter people are about different grievances, especially in the realm of identity politics. As, as a Jewish guy, nothing gave me more pride than on, on Passover to hear, we were once slaves, but now we dine as kings. Right. What could be better than teaching the black yeah. population? You were slaves in this land, and now you are, you are capable of being kings. Right. And there's plenty to be. The opportunity is outstanding. Outstanding here. As, as, a, as a black person, African-American, whatever the phrase is now, you, you, you can thrive here better than in any other country in the world. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there's <clears throat> not discrimination going on. I that get that. doesn't mean it's not hard <laughs> and difficult and you're not yeah. going to have some difficult moments mm -hmm. and people who tell you, no, you can't do that or right. no, you won't or I won't buy your product or service, but you have the opportunity. Right. And the best way to appreciate that opportunity is to understand the history, right? This is what this whole movie, the, um, the, the Beneath the Helmet, came to, to mean to me. Uh, my appreciation for what Israel does. It's such a brilliant country. It teaches its children uh, the, the history of Israel over and over again. And it goes into great depth. And they also teach the Bible for the same reason. It also connects us to the Bible, which is a wonderful thing. So they get both, both a dose of history and a dose of religion at the same time, which is, in Israel's case, a, a bit of the same thing, right? So can you imagine the, the confidence that this builds in, in Jews who live in Israel, who are raised up in Israel? Putting aside that it's just a great camaraderie that, that goes on. But maybe the camaraderie is because they, they have that common bond and they have that sense of love for their country and their love for their history and pride in their achievements. That's the ultimate self-esteem. Always will be. And I'm, and I'm proud of Israel for it. And, and I'm part of that equation, too. Um, sadly, I, I don't speak Hebrew very well. Uh, my Hebrew is pretty limited, but, you know, maybe better than the, the typical American. But um, I, I, I love visiting with Israels. I love uh, Israelis, and I love visiting Israel to study their history. Um, I'm going to Israel in the near future, and I will show my son again uh, how wonderful Israel is and also talk about the history of Israel all the time. This is where we believe that King David uh, slew Goliath. I mean, how cool is that, right? Right there, in this plane right here. Um, this is where you know, the Romans tried to destroy us, and this is the last wall that remains. How cool is that, right? This is where your grandfather, Grandpa Renan, where he fought in the Six-Day War, against the Arab army that came in to try to slaughter them all. See the bullet holes in these walls? That was from the Six-Day War. How cool is that, right? I mean, it's just, it's a tale of survival, but it's a, ta a tale of great achievement at the same time. And connection, connection, connection. And all you have to do is just rob them of that history, and that's the end of your country. You want to destroy a country? Take away it's history, and then it's all there for you for the plunder. This is Brock Lurie. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in. Ben Shapiro here with a man I have tremendous respect for, my good friend, attorney Barack Lurie. Barack, you've been practicing law for over 24 years. Do you have some important advice about lawsuits? Well, Ben, the law deals with conflict, right? A good attorney should help ease a lot of your anxieties because he should have perspective and know how to gather his evidence. But his main mission should always be to pursue the path toward quick resolution or settlement. Well, how do you do that? Simply by working to remove the emotion from both sides. Once you gather information and think rationally and compare strengths and weaknesses in a case, you can work on what's fair. The truly great lawyers know how to do that and quickly. You can see, folks, why I so admire Barack Lurie and all the work that he does. For all your business and real estate legal issues, call my friend Barack at 866-575-8111. 866-575-8111. 866 
575-8111. Fighting for what's right. Barack Lurie at Lurie and Seltzer. Listen to The Barack Lurie Show, Sundays at 10 a.m. here on AM870, The Answer. Uh, situation with the ACLU where they are now seeking to force the Catholic Church uh, when they provide uh, assistance to uh, uh, the poor, uh, to the needy basically, that they should also provide abortion services. Have you heard about this? This is the latest thing. Yeah. Okay. And the, the, the rationale of the ACLU has, I mean, <laughs> it's so astray, it's so crazy. The rationale of the ACLU, and this is a formal complaint now, is that, by golly, they, uh, the, the Catholic Church obtains so much in the way of tax breaks from the government and other assistance from the government then, uh, that, that they should, uh, you know, not force their religious views upon other people. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Where do I start with this, Ari? I guess I'll start off. <laughs> He's looking, making a face now. It, it is so you can frustrating. Start off by not hitting me with a baseball bat in the head with a statement like that. That's left me completely confused. It's 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 what? so. Be- <laughs> this day has come. That's what I, you know, we predicted this, um, because you know the state is the most important thing. You understand in the eyes of the far left and certainly the ACLU, they're on a mission. And there should be no favorites anymore. And religion, well, that's just a silly, silly thing. And you can, you can practice all you want, uh, Mr. Catholic or Mr. Protestant or Mr. Jew or Mr. Muslim, for that matter. But um, if it uh, does not jibe with our government policies, well, we, uh, we're not going to support you anymore. And you don't have the benefit of a 501c3 status anymore and so on. Yeah, but, but isn't this in reverse? Isn't their job as the American Civil Liberties Union to constantly be suing the government for imposing things on a religious institution or a company or an you, individual? You are, you are right, but the problem is that, you see, their demand that everyone receive the right to an abortion be sacrosanct, and uh, therefore the government should be forcing this upon the Catholic uh, Church. This, is, uh, this day has come. We we would if you were to to say that 15 years ago that 15 years from now uh, this is something that will be seriously uh, explored you would say oh, that that's ridiculous I mean we would, we would have to it would have to be a completely different country before this would would happen but here we are check it out that the ACLU has pr- uh, moved forward with this now so uh, I, I predict it's going to be a more serious story now there's no way in hell that the Supreme Court, at least as it's presently constituted, is going to give uh, credence to this kind of lawsuit as it is presently constituted. But, but what madness is this? It also, it almost doesn't matter because before, wouldn't it be great if the Supreme Court could just pluck things out of the ether like this and just stop it in its tracks yeah. rather than 
put, allowing it to go through the 15 years of legal gymnastics and millions of dollars of legal fees it'll take before it even gets to a Supreme Court. And at that point, we have to pray that the Supreme Court is constituted at least sort of the way it is now? Yes. Yes. I mean, the good news is that the process, whether it's a fully liberal court or a fully conservative court, it doesn't... It doesn't go through the process of, of uh, evaluating the facts in the same way as, as the earlier uh, lower trial court evaluates the facts. It, the Supreme Court only looks to the constitutionality of the case. That's it. The constitutionality, uh, to the constitutional issues that are brought by the case. So, for example, I don't know. Um, a classic example is this recent Raisin case where some farmers were be forced to um, give uh, one-fifth of their raisins, the, the actual raisins, to the government so the government can either sell it themselves or destroy it. Uh, it's not even a question of tax. It's a question of actually take your produce and give it to the government. And so they're arguing, I think correctly, this is a matter of eminent domain. You need to give me just compensation for this, for whatever your purpose is. And they're arguing, no, this is uh, you know, pursuant to regulations from the 1940s, whereby we, we are paying you not to grow things. So if you're growing them, then it's a violation, blah, blah, blah. So it, it, it invokes a constitutional issue. Yeah, Tenth Amendment Internet, uh, Interstate tra Commerce right, right. Clause yeah. expansion. Yeah. So I, I don't want to get too, too, too drilled down too much in this issue, but I want to just simply lay this out. The, the point is that the specifics about this is that they are asking, they're requiring or want to require the Catholic Church to provide abortion services to illegal immigrants. You see, it's not enough that the Catholic Church provides shelter and assistance in that, in the needy, to the needy that way. If they're going to do that, they also have to provide abortion services. See? Now, now <laughs> here's an organization that is doing something that ostensibly the government would like, right? To, I mean, at least this government, is that they're, they're trying to help uh, illegal immigrants and make them feel more comfortable in this country. And yeah, they're <laughs> giving handouts. Giving handouts already, right? I mean, it's not as if they're making money in the process. And then say, well, if you're going to make money in the process, you also have to do X. It's not like, you know, when a developer develops a big building, right? They, they say... <laughs> Uh, you know, sure, if you want to build the building, but you have to do these other things because of the congestion that this will create. Therefore, we want you to provide uh, lower income housing. Traffic uh, mitigation. Traffic mitigation, yeah. things like that. Because, you know, it's a quid pro quo. You know, I don't like that so much, but nevertheless, I understand it. Okay, from a... And they're also accommodating perhaps not the general public at large, but other neighbors who already exist on the block. Yeah. Their so parcel no. is going to be developed on. Right. But these guys, meaning the Catholic Church, God bless them, they're providing, out of the goodness of their heart, shelter and food. <laughs> and then they get sued for, for not providing abortion services. I mean, what the frig is going on here? And they're specifically suing them for something that they know they're ideologically... Uh, Im impossible to reconcile right, with. Right, right. So, so here's what's going to happen, of course. And, and this happened already with the Catholic Church. <laughs> right. they're, they're just going to say, okay, well, F it. You know, you guys take care of it yourselves. Yeah, no food, no, no shelter. No shelter, <laughs> yeah. So the government, of course, will take in, which is what they actually want, I think, at the end of the day. Of course, you never can accuse a, a, you know, a liberal of thinking things through, as we often say. Uh, I've been admonished from several of my liberal friends to say, it's not true for all liberals. We do think things through. All right, fine. <laughs> Not all liberals don't think things through. How about that? Uh, I think there's a logical flaw in that, but nevertheless, 
Well, the, the response is so obvious. That means you're not really a liberal because that means if you're thinking things through, someday your ideological status is going to fluctuate. Right. So let's exactly let's think this one through. Right. So the Catholic Church is facing a lawsuit. Uh, presumably, it has you know expensive lawyers that has to respond to this. No, we just want to help people in, who are needy. Right. Um, <laughs> And you also have to provide abortion services. The ACLU, what's the ACLU's response to this? Uh, they say that uh, the, let's be clear about this, ending the productive and successful partnership between the Catholic Church and the federal government on the care and shelter of vulnerable populations. Okay? That's actually the response of the Catholic Church. So, uh, and, I, and I agree with them, of course. Uh, but the ACLU's position is that they, they really need to help uh, those, uh, the, the poor illegal immigrants and provide them the abortion service, services that they so richly deserve, right? This is just, okay, so what's going to happen? Let's think this through. Catholic Church said, okay, look, we're already, not only are we providing all this you know, money where we could be spending on other things, you can certainly provide to other people, but we also now have to incur the legal fees associated with this, which is enormous, uh, so, you know what? We'll just get out of this altogether. The government will take care of it. And then, of course, the next thing is, well, well, if you are providing any services to any people, not, not just illegal immigrants, you should also provide abortion services. As, as if somehow the Catholic Church is somehow this whole country in and of itself that needs to somehow, like it's a, it's a state, <laughs> right? And uh, it needs to provide um, abortion services just like you know, the state of Nevada cannot refuse to provide abortion services. Or they're like City of Hope. We do cancer charitable work. Right. Oh, but we're going to sue you to make sure you do abortion suit, but we only do cancer funding. Tough luck. Nope. But the <laughs> other thing is, I just realized, I just figured it out, they are thinking things through, the, the liberals. Get this. The whole idea of the immigration policy is to amnestize and someday citizenize these people so they can become voters, right? Yep. Okay. One of the problems they have with all these people coming across the southern border of Hispanic origin is that they're Catholics. If they're Catholics, there's a chance that they believe in a guy named Jesus Christ and thus may someday be conservative voters. So one of the ways you can break them apart from the church or de-religionize them oh. is by having them see that the religious organization they're seeking shelter for is doing something that offends their principles. Well, it also creates a disconnect from their very core beliefs. Right. So that there's a <clears throat> chance they leave the Catholic Church. Yeah, I think you're. I think that's a little too uh, conspiratorial. But <laughs> but we've seen this stuff before. But, but we've seen this stuff before. The the point is, you know, once you, if the ACLU were to be successful in this lawsuit, then what's What's it to stop them from doing this uh, for all services, right? I mean, why, why? Forget about religious for a second. Why not stop? Uh, why, why not require? I don't know the YMCA <laughs> to provide abortion services. Yeah, gymnasiums and abortion clinics. Yes, exactly. Well, why not? It's uh, you know, why not the Seven Eleven store? I mean, <laughs> and by the way, Seven Eleven and abortion. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's a little cheaper there too. You know, can I use the restroom? Uh, no, it's only for customers. How about your abortion services? No, only for customers. <laughs> but 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 you get the idea. It's it's so crazy. Um, now, okay, the, they will say the the ACLU, uh, their argument, because I want to be intellectually honest. They'll say, look, we don't want to allow the Catholic Church or any charity for that matter, who enjoys a five hundred one c three deduction benefit, because they are charities. 
to somehow go against government principles and the right to an abortion. And I put a, a capital R on the right and capital A on abortion because that's the way they think of it because it's so holy, you understand. Ah, gets me angry. Um, that, that, that there's a right to an abortion and therefore a, a government-mandated right. See, now, even Roe v. Wade, even Roe v. Wade, and, and you know I think it's a disgusting law for all sorts of reasons. Substantively, it's disgusting, and procedurally, it's disgusting. But we could talk about that all day long. Um, what, what I have probably with, with Roe v. Wade, at least, they didn't say that the government must provide abortion services or that anyone must provide abortion services or that there's a right to an abortion from the government, okay, publicly funded. They simply said, and I'm not, again, I'm not agreeing with it, that a woman may have an abortion without it being criminalized. Okay, that's, that's it. Okay, again, I don't agree with that principle. I think it's wrong. I think it's evil. Uh, it's, it's certainly immoral. But there's no stretch that this or that has to provide them. It's just have an abortion, do not go straight to jail without passing, go and collecting. Right, bucks. right, right. So you know, you, and people can argue. Look, I don't want someone who had an abortion to go to to go to jail. I understand that, and I respect that. Okay, uh, you know, there are all sorts of other issues involved, but certainly it's a it's a moral issue. But the the fact is <clears throat> that we conservatives have been making a lot of great inroads to. Minimizing and qualifying the, the the abortion issue that you know allowing uh, doctors and nurses, for example, to show them uh, what your baby looks like before you actually do an abortion, uh, to uh, require that teenagers talk to their parents uh, before and get their permission. Those kind of re restrictions that we think are healthy from a moral point of view, uh, if not a criminal point of view. Okay. In the meantime, however, the liberals want to expand the right of, of abortion. So it's two different paths, if you like, like a V, you know, one going on the conservative side, one going on the liberal side. They want to expand the right uh, dramatically in such that it's actually a right to an abortion, such that the government must provide those services. See, it, it's such a right that for you to even pay a penny for an abortion is inappropriate. Um, soon it's going to get to the point where, you know, if you need an abortion, well, the government should have to have a van that comes to your house or wherever you may be, 24-hour demand, so that you can get uh, an abortion. You should not be uh, suffering the labor of actually having to go to an abortion clinic. I can't believe what a small thinker you are. <laughs> oh, I, can't, I can't believe it. No. This is the way it's going to be. Besides the van. You know, by I the way, am the host of the show. There'll be a limo. Yeah, I know. You're my a limo. <laughs> no. You will be paid to have an abortion. Uh, you will get money from the government. Every abortion you have, you get more money. You'll start off 1000 for the first, 4000 for the second. And as each abortion you have, you incur more risk. So is the reverse of all these uh, these these pro-growth governments where they were offering some money to the mothers for, for actually having uh, a child. Right. Now it's it's because you're saving the government money, you understand. Right. 13, because, because we believe in a uh, zero population growth or even negative population growth, uh, therefore you're helping society, you understand. It's sustainable. <laughs> okay? So your 13th, 14th, 15th abortion, 100,000, 150,000, 200,000. You might even have a show or, you know, win an award or something. Right. Okay. Let, let's not get too silly here. The point is uh, that the liberal side of the camp has has definitely sought to expand uh, the abortion 
issue so that it's a right that the government must actually give you. And so, so now you actually see how it's twisting and how it's reshaping the whole focus and why the ACLU can, can think that they actually have a case here. I mean, some, look, the ACLU, they're, they're run by fairly bright people. Um, and so they, they must think that the state of the law, and for that matter, the mood of the country, is such that they can actually win this case. And because they don't, they don't want to take on losing cases. Well, let me ask you about that, because I think that's an important point that a lot of people out there think. Yeah. Is it the state of the law, in the text of the law, that makes them think they can win that case? Or is it activist judges that they know they have a very good shot about getting in front of that will mold the law to their legal theory? It's, it's both, of course, because the state of the law means that there are certain uh, precedents that have occurred that allow them to then make a legal argument to say, hey, judge, this is similar to, I don't know, requiring... Um, Bakers to bake cakes for well, gay marriages. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Uh, that's That that they've already conquered. So, to, but, but laws like, uh, for example, I don't know if you know, but your optometrist is required to check to see whether you have glaucoma. Okay? And if they don't, then it's a serious liability for them. Um, and, and likewise, they, they're kind of developing this area of law such that um, if you're holding yourself out as a medical health professional, well, then you need to also provide uh, abortion services. And, and it just, it's just, oh, you, see, you see how they're ex yeah. expanding it? So here the dermatologist we, is negligent if they don't do a pre-cancer screening. Thus, any doctor for any procedure has to offer or force on you an abortion. Well, let me tell you exactly what they're saying. <clears throat> and, and that's exactly. Providing food and shelter to illegal immigrants, is this is from Fox News, by the way, isn't it enough for federally funded Catholic organizations, according to the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, which is suing the federal government to help ensure the religious organizations provide abortion and contraception to them as well. The suit aims to obtain government records related to reproductive health care policy for unaccompanied immigrant children in the care of federally funded Catholic agencies which do not believe in abortion. We have heard reports that Catholic bishops are prohibiting Catholic charities from allowing teens in their care to access critical services like contraception and abortion, even if the teenager has been raped on her journey to the United States or in a detention facility said ACLU staff attorney Bridget Amiri. And then it goes on to talk about uh, uh, this logic here that they have. Um, and uh, here their argument is uh, the ACLU is only suing federal for federal documents on the Catholics, uh, Catholic Church's policies at the moment, but will consider further legal actions depending on what those documents indicate. The, document, the government has not yet officially responded to the SELU's request. Okay, so they, they believe that they're doing God's work here. That's, that's the, let's make no mistake of it. They think that they're the holy ones, the SELU, right? Because abortion is such a thing. When will it get to the point that the Catholic Church, or for that matter, Christians at large, or Jews at large, for that matter, will say, look, you are forcing us to believe in false gods, right? Just like the Greeks had done, just like the Romans had done. I mean, remember that, that Israel during the Roman occupation was the most conflicted 
uh, territory of the Roman Empire. The most, by far, they had to send 85,000 troops to Israel to quell the Jewish rebellion. All the other uh, people in different countries and such, they were more than happy to join the Roman Empire. It was very easy peasy. And all they had to do was raise their right hand and swear that the Roman emperor was a living God. That's that all was it. Is. is that so much to ask? <laughs> but no, those Jews and those Christians later on, uh, they refused. And, uh, you know, and, and, and they died for it. They yeah, fought. because they insisted on worshiping this invisible God right. no one could see. <laughs> crazy, crazy Jews. And, 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 like, and likewise with the, uh, the Greek Empire, but before them, right? Well, yeah. That's what the Hanukkah story is all about. So, you know, but, but, and we, we resonate to those stories. We, we are so proud of them. And we say, you should never force someone to, uh, to believe in something you don't believe in and, and such. And uh, we respect that. And yet we're doing that exactly now. And, and what, I'm, what concerns me, what makes me so angry is we don't see, we Jews and Christians alike, don't see that they're doing exactly the same thing with the gay marriage, uh, forcing bakers and such, photographers and, and pizza parlors and such, to do work on behalf of things that they truly find reprehensibly immoral. That they, 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 they're forcing them to do it. And now, abortion? I mean, that, that, that's the equivalent of murder to these Catholic priests, and, and for that matter, anyone who's Catholic. They consider it murder, and I, and I respect that opinion. I do. It's the killing of an innocent life. And it, if you look at the—it's overused, but the slippery slope of where we've come from then to now with just Roe v. Wade, you could very easily logically see that in short time, they will be asked to commit— actual murder for some altruistic purpose that sure. becomes the style of the time. And say, well, you you agreed to the abortions. Why the moral yeah. uh, tumult over this? Well, this is what cults do very successfully, right? They force you, they find out what you find to be the most disgusting thing that you can, that you can do. Uh, and they'll force you to do it. And then it'll disconnect you from who you are, from your identity, from your very core beliefs. Uh, for example, if you find your, that, that uh, homosexual behavior is, is disgusting, they'll, they'll force that if you want to join the cult to disconnect you from who you once were. And the, the, the government is doing exactly the same thing, right? They're forcing, they would like to force, or at least the ACLU would like to force the Catholics to, in, to do what in their mind is murder. And once you have them doing that, you've broken them, haven't you? Absolutely. So. You've unmoored them from every moral principle and anchor that they have. Yeah. The other thing that's just so ironic about the ACLU is because I grew up hearing what a wonderful organization this was. They're always protecting people's First Amendment rights. I've been waiting my whole life to see them ever defend someone's Second Amendment rights. <laughs> it's true. Because they it's just true. pick and choose the Constitution like the Cheesecake Factory menu, and they'll have the waffle, but they don't want the pancakes. Right. Well, there are only 10... Uh, uh, you know, the, the cheesecake me uh, menu is, is so elaborate, so many different things, but I, I guess what you're saying. It's like a menu. Yeah, you're right. They, yeah, they they'll defend they the want. brunches, but not the desserts, you know? <laughs> right. They pick and choose what they want to enforce. There's no doubt about that. It's, it's a concerning time that we, we live in, and um, it, it's very similar to another issue that's come up. The major question that I, I think that Dennis Prager once wrote about in his book, uh, Think a Second Time, and... Among the many things that, you know, headlines that he'd like to see is what, what it was called. And one of, the, <laughs> one of the headlines was, 
ACLU decides it has accomplished its essential purpose and is disbanding, right? And that should have been, that should have occurred in the 60s. Whatever good the ACLU did uh, stopped in the 60s. Because after that, uh, it, it's just reaching now, for, searching for uh, things, for issues that are just not meaningful issues. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to fight against interracial marriage bans, right? I, I get that. I'm going to fight against um, Jim, you know, Crow, Jim or Crow laws, or lunch I'm gonna, yeah, or, or, or I'm going to fight against uh, the denial of free speech. You know, despite how contemptuous I find it to be. For example, the Skokie, um, uh, the rally from in the in the 70s, the Nazi marches, the Nazi the marches. Yeah, um, you know, you, you're going to fight for that right to do to, to do so as contemptible as it may be. Fine, but now they're really stretching and they're creating these issues that are just not issues that are meaningful anymore, and they're not truly constitutional issues either, and, and they're just seeking to justify their existence. And it makes you think about what has the ACLU really accomplished, right? When, when, it, when is it that they've actually been able to say, we made this new law? We created this uh, reinterpretation of the law such that now everyone has this right where they previously didn't have the right, and now we all look back on it and say, wow, I can't believe we ever once thought otherwise. I'd like to see that, because I don't see it. It actually reminds me a little bit, um, and I don't want to get too tangential about it, but it reminds me, I saw the movie The Lorax again. Uh, this is uh, a movie that it's played where this Lorax creature is played by Danny DeVito, and it's a cartoon. Uh, it's a cute story, but it's definitely a very anti-business story, and it's uh, supposed to be all about the environment. And it's about a, uh, a guy who decides to profit from the destruction of trees for their need such uh, uh, a tree is cut down by the one slur. That, that, that's right. Right. Needs. Right. And uh, and then you see them, uh, you know, just you know, raping the land. And then finally, there's the last tree, the truffle tree that's that's brought down. And isn't that a terrible thing? Um, and and you think, okay, um, you know, wow, it's that's. And now all of a sudden, they realize, oh gosh, I I killed the last tree. So it made me think, when, was, when, the, when has that ever occurred in history, <laughs> right, where a business was just so irresponsible that it just sucked out all the resources, whether it's trees or otherwise, okay, or oil for that matter, and just, and just totally pulverized it, and we all learned a lesson from that story. I hate to be like um, the guy in that scene from Life of Brian when you ask, what have the Romans do for you <laughs> right, tonight? Right. There is actually one situation I can mention. All right. The wiping out of all the birds in Florida for the ladies' hats with the feathers in them, that was what actually the Lorax was based on. Oh, is that right? Yeah, in like the 1910s and 1920s, ladies' hats with feathers became the biggest thing. Right. And, and they, the hat industry wiped out all the birds in Florida that had the feathers for that. Oh, that's so funny. So it did happen once. All right. All right. But <laughs> other than that, I can't name a time. Yeah, I, I don't think you could seriously mention any other significant time. Oh, and certainly I, that, that movie uh, it suggests that somehow this is a... This happens every day. That you have to, it happens every day, and we have to guard against it, and we have to protect it. We have to, all sorts of regulations, because if we don't have it, then those nasty people will, I don't know, exploit every single uh, a tree out there. Uh, for their own purposes, for the lumber and such. Oh, never, mi never mind yeah. the fact that it's obviously so short-sighted, right? I mean, even a businessman who wants to continue making profits will understand that if he continues to, let's say, spoil the water for his own pollution purposes, that at some point we're all going to die. 
and, and you know nobody thinks like this. They <laughs> somebody that has has lumber is is very interested in in replanting the trees. In fact, with all the lumber and all the houses that we have, we have more trees now than we ever have had. Not because of regulations, my friend, but precisely because business understands that if it wants to continue in business, it has to find a way to replenish itself, right? I mean, you have to think for the future. I mean, even my law firm, for example, I, I have to think about, you know, the, the next, uh, next client, right? I, I have to make sure that I treat the existing clients well, because if I don't treat the existing clients well, well, then eventually people are going to, the word will spread out that I'm, I'm not a good lawyer somehow, and therefore no one's going to use me anymore, right? It's, it's as simple as that. And you also have to plant the seeds for future marketing and future uh, attorneys that may happen uh, later on. This is the way business thinks. They don't think about just selling their inventory uh, for the right here or now, right? I mean, even the guy in the 7-Eleven store who owns a 7-Eleven store or franchise of it is not interested in just selling whatever inventory he has, you know, for the most that he can and uh, in in some sort of outward, backward place. Um, he's going to sell it for the right amount, and he wants to have an inventory that gets replenished all the time. Why? Because there's something called the future <laughs> that he has to think about. Anyway, uh, and, and the future is not what the ACLU thinks about. Okay? They think that we are all so short-sighted uh, that, we are, that, that we have to be controlled, we have to be told what to do, we have to be told what services need to be provided, uh, and that the government should mandate these things. Now, uh, this is the last point I'll say before we uh, conclude this, this segment of the podcast, which is the ACLU is really an interesting animal because it's also changed. This um, notes a very big moment in the ACLU dynamic. What do I mean? The ACLU was always about uh, trying to find that this or that action was is unconstitutional. Okay, so whatever it might be, as far-fetched as it may be or as, as good as it may be. Um, it may be, uh, for example, like you, you should not restrict somebody from his right to march on Skokie, the Nazis that we were just talking about, or right? Or raise a flag over <clears throat> their condominium, even if it's part of a homeowners association. Right. Something like that. Yeah. Um, th- that's exactly right. In other words, negative rights. The, the, you, can't, you can't restrict somebody from doing something. Now the ACLU instead is saying, you shall do something, right? You shall provide abortion services. Yeah, you don't have the choice to say no. Right. You have to do this. Right. And this is similar. The ACLU was the one behind the, uh, the actions of uh, the, the, you know, the, gay, um, the gay marriage uh, issues with all the bakery and the pizzas and the photographers and the florists, right? Those are, they're, they're telling that you must do this. This is a change, right? That's a, a, a positive requirement. Put, put, put away the connotation that the word positive is, generally speaking, a good phrase. It's, it's like a cancer test positive, where kind of yes. positive is a bad thing. <laughs> it's a bad a thing. A very you, bad you thing. You want to hear the word negative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this is, this is where we're at with it. And you can expect more and more of this uh, because, you know, all the rights have been fully established at this point. The rights to be left alone, basically. The, the right to have... Uh, to not be restricted in your speech, the right to to have your guns, the right to not have the government come into your house uh, with an invalid search and seizure, the right to a jury, things like that. But but now it's impositions where you must start doing things. You are positive, positively 
required to do X, Y, or Z. That's the change. And watch out for this abortion issue because the ACLU will continue to push it. And it all started, by the way, with uh, our friend from the government. Um, what's her name? Uh, the woman who, who talked about free contraceptives. Sandra Fluke. Sandra Fluke. Um, she was the, not, not the very beginning, but she was part of the beginning where there was this notion that you must provide contraceptives. You must provide birth control. Um, you must provide, and now abortion services. The dialogue started happening well, it actually, I, I remember an interview with Barack Obama from like 2001, 2002, in which he was saying what he doesn't like about the Constitution is it's a charter of negative rights. And he wishes the Constitution was a charter of positive rights. In this case, yeah. positive like a positive cancer result. That's right. Meaning you ha will have to do all these things because we tell you to by not by being able to say no to things, you're imposing on other people. Yep. <laughs> That's his philosophy, and you're exactly right about that, too. Yeah, everyone has to get on board. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's in order to get on board, but to get on board, you, you have to, everyone has to agree. That's the problem. That's the nature of communism and socialism and, and a lot of liberalism, generally speaking. It, you know, it, what, what, the biggest knock that liberals today have against conservatives is essentially the following. Why won't you just let Obama do what he needs to do, right? If you weren't for you wascally Republicans or conservatives, more importantly, you're constantly frustrating him, we would get things done. But that's the whole point. Our system is not, not just a system of checks and balances, which it is. It's, it's a system that understands that we're not about one vision only. We're not dictatorial. You, you like your vision. I, I get that. But that's the problem that you have, is that you don't like it that somebody else has a different vision for it. That's the issue. And they get so shocked about that. And, and so this notion of communism and socialism and liberalism, like I said, it only works when you force people to do the things you believe, you, the liberal, believe is right. And if you don't do it, well, we've got laws to uh, throw you in jail or at least to seriously penalize you, or to make you think whether or not you really should go against our grain. This is Brock Lurie. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Prager here. If you have a business or real estate dispute, I strongly recommend that you call Barack Lurie. Barack, you recently resolved a dispute for a client without any cost to him. How? Dennis, he came to me because of tensions he was experiencing from a superior in a university. I sensed that my client's success threatened his superior, and so he was looking to undermine my client. And how did you handle it? Well, I told him to do nothing. He was leaving the university, and his publications would launch him into a higher category. His previous department head would not only fade in memory, but also fade in industry recognition. And that's exactly what seems to be happening. My client is thrilled to not have entangled himself in a lawsuit, nor risk his career. And it feels great for me, too. He won without firing a shot. Brilliant. My friends, you know that I trust Barack Lurie with my own business legalities. Call him for your own legal issues at 866-575-8111. That's 866-575-8111. Fighting for what's right. Barack Lurie at Lurie & Seltzer. 866-575-8111. And now, listen to The Barack Lurie Show Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. here on AM870, The Answer.
to talk about, and particularly with Hillary Clinton. As you know, Hillary Clinton is uh, very much in the news. And, and, you know, we talked just a little while ago about hi history and the racing of history and stuff like that. But I, well, I, I guess it's ironic. Uh, ironically, the last thing that Hillary Clinton wants to deal with is her own history, right? And the history of the nation, for that matter. The only history she wants to make, of course, is that she would be the first woman president, right? Um, and the first, uh, there's a lot of firsts, I suppose. The first lady, first lady, the first first lady to become a president uh, in, in turn, and so on. But that's about the, the only thing where history is touching the, the discussion. The reality is, you look at her own personal history, that's the last thing she wants you to look at. Everything about her is empty. There is, there's not a single thing that she's done, not, not one accomplishment, right? Um, the Except only for all the criminal activity. <clears throat> yeah, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. <clears throat> but I'm just didn't want to let that. No, it, it won't. It, oh, don't you worry, my good <laughs> you friend. You made her sound like she hasn't accomplished <clears throat> anything. No, no, that's actually she has. <laughs> that's true. That's right. I mean, Charles Manson accomplished something in that way too, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, um, talk about accomplishments in a positive way, of course. Positive accomplishments. How about that? The only thing she she truly accomplished is marrying Bill Clinton. This is not a bipartisan argument. This is just a fact. She, you cannot point to anything that she's done before she married Bill Clinton as anything of substance. I mean, yes, she, she was, uh, you know, she was interested in power and such, but, and she climbed ranks, but that doesn't mean that she's achieved anything. She's done anything good for society. She's a self-achieving person. She, you know, she, she saw opportunities and took them, but that doesn't mean that she's a good person or is doing right by the world. And so she marries Bill Clinton, and uh, Bill Clinton becomes, uh, you know, relatively successful president uh, for the two terms. And she's kind of hammering all every once in a while, saying how brilliant she is and such. But you know, other than Hillary Care that she proposes, which of course bombs, uh, what what has she done? And she didn't even do Hillary Care. That's the point. It's a, it's a failure. Um, and thank goodness that never worked, because that in turn would be another example of a failure that she she stepped into. And then, uh, of course, she becomes a senator. <clears throat> and the senator position, I think you were talking about this offline, Ari. Uh, you know, she kind of just steps into it because there's an opening in New York because of circumstances. It's very fortuitous for her. Giuliani decides not to run for the Senate uh, because he had uh, no, sadly... No, he was running, but he dropped out late in the race. Right. He's he like, I, came I know. out with cancer. Yeah, he came out with cancer. He decides not to run further, I should have said. Uh, and as a consequence, now there's an opening. She takes it, and uh, the, the the guy that she's running against is not, you know, not a, a man of substance by any stretch. And next thing you, you know, she's the senator from New York, and uh, she barely achieves. Okay, now she's senator. She doesn't do very much as a senator. In fact, virtually nothing. Um, you know, yeah, you can always say that she signed this or that bill. I mean, so what? That's what senators are supposed to do. But to actually achieve something in, in the Senate. You know, I, I, and again, in, in her defense, I don't think senators really achieve very much anyway. Um, They're not yeah. supposed to. You know what senators achieve? Re-election. That's, that's, that's what, what they, they do. do. Yeah. Forty-year careers yeah. of drinking and you're, sleeping. You're, you're there to confirm or, or reject a proposed appointments, um, treaties, as the case may be, and uh, pass bills, as the case may be, as well. Maybe you'll propose one bill yourself. So what? Okay. You, you can't. I mean, you're just one senator. Okay, and it's nice. We, we expect you to be representative of your state. But other than that, it's, you, you can't say any, that senators achieve anything. And certainly this, this particular senator didn't achieve anything. So 
even as a Democrat, all right? I mean, whatever Democrats consider to be achievements. So, I'll, I'll, and then, of course, she becomes Secretary of State. Having run against Obama, having lost against Obama, uh, and I, I think is just a humiliating loss to Obama. She was supposed to be the it girl that, that year, right, 2008, and then Obama snatches victory from her, and, and, a, and a pretty, pretty well-fought victory. Uh, you have to give him credit. He was brilliant in the moves. And, and she, she was the one who exposed Obama with the Reverend Wright business and other things and also brought up the birther issue herself, right? So doesn't succeed in that. Then she becomes Secretary of State. And as, I, and I as think a, that's important that you elaborate that a yeah. little more in one okay. way, which is that shows you how devoid of actual ideas and substance her campaign was. Right. The only thing her campaign had was a couple... Uh, somewhat conspiratorial smears right. at a guy who's now president, and the only convenient thing those conspiratorial smears have turned into is now they're attributed to the Tea Party that never came up with them. Right. All that, all that she had was negative campaigning and yes. uh, didn't even succeed in that. Okay. So now she's Secretary of State as a consolation prize, basically. Some sort of backdoor deal was done. Fine. I, I get that. That happens. So I'm not going not gonna to knock her for that. But now she's Secretary of State, and she does nothing, nothing. All she does is she trips around in various different countries and uh, has done literally nothing. Okay? And what she has done when she has encountered people is to do these gimmicks, the most famous one being the reset button with Russia, which even that was a mistranslation. It was something like the ignition overload, overload, the overload button. Which it well, it worked. Right, it did overload. It did overload. Yeah, but this notion—I mean, I, I, I really, to this day, I imagine what the Russians were thinking. Like, wow, what an idiot! These guys actually think that this yeah. is meaningful. Yeah. Right. So, anyway, the reset button obviously was a joke, and this is nothing to do with anything. There was no great strategic move that prevented a major war or escalation. Uh, no uh, Cuban Missile Crisis type situation that she resolved. and Not that I think that was a great resolution, by the way, but that's another story. Um, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then, of course, Benghazi, the and disaster. Before you get that, to Benghazi, I was yeah. going to mention, don't forget, yes. getting the uh, Muslim Brotherhood to take over Egypt for about 20 months, which I think is just as big as Benghazi, <clears throat> yeah. but somewhat forgotten now because of Benghazi. That's true, that's true. And it, yeah, all the while denying her assistant and her connections to the Muslim Brotherhood. Why don't you, Ari, explain a little bit about that? I know about it somewhat, but I would like you to explain it in detail in a short fashion about her connection to the to the Brotherhood. Go well, ahead. Her, and this this is not conspiracy. This is all true. She has an assistant named Huma Abedin, who is her most trusted confidant. She's essentially Hillary Clinton's chief of staff and has been going back 20 years. Huma Abedin is the daughter of the founder of something called the Muslim Sisterhood from Egypt, which is the sister organization of the Muslim Brotherhood. It essentially is the Muslim Brotherhood, except they don't let in women. So it's the women's version of the Muslim Brotherhood. And in all of the Secretary of State's activities, and Obama's since Obama took office, the entire administration has always been in strong support of all the Muslim Brotherhood actual groups. 
um, the Muslim Brotherhood's connections run deep and badly into some areas like things like Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, um, you know, the um, Palestinian Authority, you know, all sorts of groups that are uh, uh, usually referred to as terrorist organizations. And these are the people Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, but especially Hillary, supported in taking over Egypt during the 2010-2011 Arab Spring era. If you remember, that yeah, was about a year before that. Benghazi. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, the connection is very bizarre. And whatever purpose that she has in that is, uh, is unacceptable. Just totally unacceptable. It's, uh, and, and one wonders what she would do as president, but that's another story. Look, and Benghazi, we wanted to talk about briefly, uh, the whole what difference doesn't make and the fact that she pointed to the video as being the, the primary reason why the attack happened in the first place and hoped that everyone would buy into that nonsense. She's got a lot of explaining to do. So a woman that has done nothing and whatever she did try to do of any substance was quite horrific. Yeah, and then terrible, terrible, terrible results yeah. and everything. But but I want to go in a slightly different direction from here. Okay. The point is, and I and I spoke to more than a couple of my good liberal friends uh, on this issue, and we would argue, and I, I would say she has, you know, she's done nothing, and she's got to answer to the fact that she's done nothing, and they and they would say, what are you talking about? She's, I, I forget frankly what they said because there really was nothing. But, um, you know, the fact is that she's Secretary of State, she's experienced, and she's, she's going to be ahead of the game because as a Secretary of State, she has uh, knowledge of the, of the world leaders, and she can, she can uh, push that forward, and she knows who's who in every country. Okay, fine. You know, that, that takes about a month to get, you know, up to speed for any president, as if that's ever been an issue. Just the play a reason, game of risk, and you yeah, got exactly, it. exactly. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> It's like, you know, I, I know people who, who can figure out all the, the basketball players, the major, in, in, in less than a month. Okay, I mean, and there's a lot more of them than there are world leaders. So give me, that's just nothing. <laughs> so now you, you have to ask, what is the issue of, of the, the real issue? Because I, I, the, with the, my liberal friends, I, I finally said to them, look, you and I can, can banter around like this. But the reality is, and this cuts against both of us. The reality is that it doesn't matter. All this intellectual highbrow stuff about what she did and what she didn't do, that will make decisions for maybe 0.5% of the population. Okay? We people who live and breathe this stuff and listen to what the politicians actually say and hold them to account for the record and all that stuff, there's only 0.5% only of the population. I'm not saying that we're better than anyone else. It's just simply that's what we do. We, we, we're more engaged about that. The reality is that 99.5%, the other 99.5% of the population, votes for this or that person based upon their feelings. Okay? The famous line from, uh, uh, I forget, the, some poet. Uh, she died recently. My, my, Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou, Yeah. She said that people don't remember the speech so much as they remember the feeling that they had during the speech. Okay, that, That's what resonates for people. And people vote with, with their feelings. I'll never forget uh, one of my uh, fellow attorneys worked in my office, very bright, uh, lovely lady. Uh, and she was a little bit older than me. And she was very into Obama in 2008. And I just, you know, we, we got along very well. And I said, I'm just curious, why, why is it that you like Obama so much? 
and I was waiting for her to say something, you know, meaningful. Because at that, at that time, you know, all we had was Reverend Wright. <laughs> there, was, there was no background for anything. And she said all she could say, and, but, but she, she meant it in a very serious way. And she did this gesture with her hand, a very feminine gesture. She said, I don't know, it's, it's just the way he makes me feel, right? And I'm not mocking her. I'm really not. She literally said, he just makes me feel at ease. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And I took that to mean a lot. And she's a, a super intelligent woman who went to a very good law school. And I thought, wow, we really got to work on this feelings department, right? I mean, it, it means a lot to a lot of people. Remember, we're, we're, not, we're not the people that, that uh, have to deal with this. Yeah, but our side used to say the same thing about Reagan. He makes yeah. me feel good about yeah. being well, in America. So, so it's we need the to, same thing. We need, to go, we need to go back to that feeling. Yes. Okay, and, and this is true. Any good speechwriter will tell you, you should always start with an anecdote, maybe a joke, and, and then a story that you think amplifies your point. Okay, people will remember the story, they won't remember the rest of your speech. Likewise, the way you make people feel. So let's, let's engage in some real politics for a second, and that means just reality, right, as it is. Putting aside all the fact that what Hillary has accomplished versus what, let's say, Scott Walker has accomplished, you know, Scott Walker is an amazing man compared to Hillary Clinton any day of the week. That's clear. But let's just talk on the feelings point of view, okay? She loses even in the feelings department. Okay, now, admittedly, there's still a year and a half to go, uh, but before the election in 2016, but from a feelings point of view, she loses there too. And what do I mean by that? I mean, she looks tired. She is tired. She looks like someone who's doing this race for the presidency because everyone else is telling her to and is expecting her to. She's simply, it's like the kid uh, who becomes a doctor because his parents want him to, right? He, but he really wants to be an actor, right? Or he wants to race cars, or he wants to write screenplays. You get the idea. But you know, he's going through medical school because, well, that's what everyone expects of him. And he hates it, right? That's who Hillary Clinton is right now. She wasn't that way in 2008. I think she was very energized in 2008. But it's been a good eight years later. And eight years makes a big difference, okay? A really big difference. And then, you know, the fact is she's older. Uh, she's, and, and not to engage in ageism of any kind, on the contrary, that the, I, I have tremendous respect for people of, of age. and they're, they're very wise, of course. But people don't see it that way. They want youth and energy. And the Republicans are offering, ironically, a tremendous amount of energy and youth for their side of the equation of the political race. Yeah, and it's more being youthful. Not We're not talking about adolescent. We're meaning someone who at least has some uh, pep and vigor in their step. Yeah, exactly. And doesn't right. seem tired and old and slow and, uh, yeah. and yeah. all that kind of stuff. That's exactly the way, the, the way it is. She... Um, she, she doesn't feel, you don't, you don't get the sense of purpose in her, right? So in terms of feelings, I, I think she loses tremendously. I think she's, she's better off relying on a record <laughs> as Secretary of State and a Senator than in the feelings department. And not only that, but, but she apparently doesn't do very well in large crowds. Like, oops, <laughs> 
that's a big that's a big thing you need to be good at. Or any crowds, actually. Right. You, you, small crowds, big crowds, you need to be good. You need to connect with the audience. Yeah. She has a connection problem. And if you don't have a connection problem, you ain't going to win the presidency. And she's also not good. And I know this terribly sounds like I'm making fun of her. I'm not. I'm just being honest. You know, sometimes reality is reality. She's also not good if there's ever a television camera around. And she's also not good in debates. And she's not good when people ask her a question. And she's not good when she answers a question. And she's really not good when she speaks. And she's really not good when she's just standing there not speaking. Right, but other than that, she's a fantastic other than that, she's, cr- she's completely electable. <laughs> oh, man. You see, I mean, it, it's, it's, that's why I want to focus on the feelings, because I do think feelings is what's going to decide this, this, this election. I mean, your point is so well taken, Ari. Uh, it's hysterical. Um, but look, 99.5% of the population, that's the reality. You know, the, 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 you know, all those people that we were joking around, you know, oh, I'm not going to have any problem. You know, when Obama got elected, I'm not going to have to pay my mortgage. I'm not going to have to pay for gas anymore. I'm not going to have to pay my electricity. I'm going to have a free phone. You know, all this ridiculous mumbo jumbo um, that was so inane and naive. And we laughed, laughed at that woman, right? And yet she represents the majority of the people who vote. Uh, she does. But they've also experienced eight years of Obama, and their rent checks were still due. Right. And their gas bills were still due. Yeah. And they still had to fill up their car with gas to go anywhere. Right. There's a lot, of, whole lot of feeling behind <laughs> right. that, too. So yeah. that, that, that's, yeah. that's an issue. Now, I, by the way, as a side note, that particular woman has now voted conservative. That's my point. God bless her. <laughs> she's, she's great. She finally came she, around. Yeah, she's, she's a smart cookie. And now she's she's actually informed, and she actually said very interesting things. I learned this, I learned that, and I learned how the economy works, and I'm voting conservative now from now on. Oh, it was it was awesome. It was awesome. Now, What's the expression? A, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged, right? That's right. And she's such a good example of exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. Now, you uh, before we started today, you were you wanted me to tell about that because this goes completely to the heart of the feelings issue with Hillary, which is, uh, remember after September 11th, there was a benefit concert that was aired live on all three networks simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Uh, A benefit concert of like a Night of the Hundred Stars kind of thing, the biggest people in the entertainment and music business putting on a free concert for the first responders, police and firemen who were involved with 9-11. And so you had bands like The Who and Paul McCartney, one of those kind, and uh, Pete Townsend, you know, the whole thing. Well, one of the people who was performing was Jerry Seinfeld. He was going to do comedy. Well, who comes out to introduce Jerry Seinfeld? Because you can't see this on YouTube, and you can't get a tape of it, but it aired live the night it happened. Hillary Clinton. Hmm. She comes out deafening booze. I mean, to the point where you could barely hear her. She had to do the Hillary screech. Yeah! Just to introduce Jerry Seinfeld above the roar of booze of that crowd. Wow. So when it comes to the feelings issue, this is anti-feeling. Yeah, I, I think she's, she's definitely. Uh, and no, Hillary she definitely Clinton. evokes Ooh. a lot of. She definitely evokes a lot of negative reaction. There's no doubt about it. She may very, very well become the Dukakis of this generation. Um, Dukakis, as you recall, in 1988, I think, with that election. 
uh, he was really just, you know, he was as warm as, as jello. You know, it just, I mean. Warm as cold jello. Yeah, cold jello. <laughs> I just, you know, he, he just didn't have a spine. There was no sense of, you know, who he was. And, and then there whole Willie, Willie Horton thing, remember? And he couldn't answer that. And, and uh, if his wife was murdered, uh, would he want the death penalty? And he couldn't even answer that question. And just, you know, very bizarre things. And, and, and Hillary Clinton, you know, it's true that everyone makes gaffes. I, you know, Romney certainly did, um, and Rubio will, and Scott Walker will, uh, but but Hillary Clinton, she is just gaff central. I mean, you, everything that she's already gaffed, right? With you know, what difference does it make? You know, don't tell don't tell uh, anyone that businesses uh, you know create jobs. You know that that kind of, that kind of nonsense. Her entire email system. Yeah, gaff. yeah, yeah. I mean, just everything about it. Everything about it, and and there's many more to come. Don't you worry, folks. This this is this is like a, you know, the episode of Lost. You know, it keeps on. Every episode was just more and more curious, and uh, all sorts of crazy things were happening all the time. And you can, you know, every time you watch the episode of Lost, you, you know the TV series, right? One thing you could count on was bizarre supernatural things happening. Yeah. Right. It, things that didn't belong were going to start happening in whatever episode. Okay. And similar to law, that's what's going to happen, you know, with her. Bizarre things are going to happen with her every month going forward. Some crazy, stupid things she's going to say or she's going to do or that's going to come out about her. And then, just like the TV series Lost, it won't have any purpose either. <laughs> It'll never come to a logical conclusion. <laughs> uh, she is uh, a pointless person. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know why she's running for president. Right? Ronald Reagan knew why he was running for president. Even Bill Clinton, Bill, her husband, understood why he was running for president. Bush did, too. Ronald Reagan is a, is a classic example of some, a great man who wanted to run for president specifically because of his, his love of America, and he wanted to redirect America to fight the evil empire called the Soviet Union and to otherwise ramp up the strength of America as a country. He saw the city on the hill, is what he said. That was his purpose. He was clear. Hillary Clinton, well, I'm a woman. Well, that's no, it. no, 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 no. The, with, Hillary Clinton, no. It, with Hillary Clinton, it's I want the power, right? Oh, yeah, well. Now, the reason that, for you to give me the power, because I'm a woman. Yeah. I, I, I understand so. the, the woman part is just a means to an end. No, but you're saying, no, but that's the, that's the cynical part, and, I, and I, I agree with you. But in terms of how she, what she projects to the outside world, um, Hillary's purpose is is just empty. There's no... A, a voter is, not, is unable to, to know why he or she is voting for Hillary Clinton. They just... They, other than to say because she's a woman. And no doubt there are people who will vote for her because she's a woman. But putting that aside, you have to ask, why are you actually voting for Hillary Clinton? What feeling does she evoke? Does she give you a sense of hope? Are things going to be much better now? Okay. On what basis do you believe that? What has she said that is going to make you feel that way? All right, so she, she understands at least that feelings are very important. So she does have a campaign message, at least good for now. Uh, and it, it'll change, don't worry. But her campaign message is that it's all about equality. We've got to focus on equality. So, okay. So, I mean, the problem with it is that... Okay, so, I just came up with the perfect slogan. All things being equal. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
Which I guess is so. usually what you say after you've been ripped off. All things being equal, I didn't lose that much money in <laughs> yeah. the stock market. Yes, yes. All things being equal, that terrible parcel of land I bought was kind of okay anyway. All, All things being equal, you know, the, the burns on my body for that terrible product don't, don't hurt so bad now <laughs> after years. Let the record reflect that Ari is much more talkative in this second segment of the podcast than the first segment. There's something about Hillary Clinton. Maybe that's how we should, we should make a, a, you know, say, there's something about Hillary. <laughs> I told you. And, I, you know what? You're, you're attracted to her, aren't you? Well, that's what my you wife said. When, when my wife and I got first together, when we first started dating, the only fights we'd ever have were over Hillary Clinton. Thou dost protest too much. <laughs> right, that's what she said. I'm saying to you, there's something about your, your passion against her. And I'd say, not everything is Oedipal. That's like Psych 101. You know what I mean? You know, <laughs> let's face it. You know, there are some good qualities of Hillary Clinton. You know, she was a good mother. That's what Chelsea says, at least. And, and if you were to believe her, she had so many thousands of emails <laughs> dealing with her mother's funeral. <laughs> so, gosh golly, I mean, she must have written a lot. Better few. Harry likes that a lot. <laughs> okay. Oh man, <laughs> cuts a commercial. Harry's. <laughs> anyway. But wait, I. Sorry. <laughs> All right, folks. So usually, okay, you usually have more control here in the her. studio. I love her. I want to see her nude. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay, we here at Brucklery Studios apologize for this outburst. <laughs> We're experiencing technical difficulties. All right, going back to now, Hillary understands these the, the feelings issue, right? She must deal with the feelings issue, so she de- deals with the equality thing, and hoping that that will evoke, you know, the feelings of okay, fairness, right? And you know, what doesn't resonate when you when you say the word fairness, right? That's a very big deal. Okay, the problem for her is that it, it's a, it's a, it's such an old swan song. It's not new at all. Everyone talks about fairness. You can always trot that out no matter how perfect the society may be. You can always say something's unfair. So you'll never be wrong to to bring it out, but it'll also be empty every time you bring it out. Curiously, uh, to to bring this out will basically force an issue to be brought out against Obama because, by golly, he's been president for eight years. And now all of a sudden, she's bringing out this fairness issue out there saying how horrible this country is for the past eight years. You know, the country that Obama apparently couldn't, couldn't fix <laughs> to make it more fair. So, and in fact, so, so badly did he not fix it that, that she has to fix it, you know, the whole fairness issue. So this is a big problem for her because it's one thing if she was riding on the coattails of eight years of a Republican, uh, of a Republican presidency. Yeah, then you can always play that game and say, well, you know, we're going to do things differently and such. But she's not. She's, she's riding on the tails of eight years of an Obama administration, which, as you know, is a complete failure. Complete failure. Not, not partial. Complete. Both domestically and domestically. Oh, sorry, domestically and uh, in foreign affairs. All right? But in that third arena... Oh, that's, what, what's that you say? There, there is no third arena? Okay. So a complete failure. <laughs> complete and so, so what does she have to, to go with, right? It's, this, is the, this is a big problem for her. She's, and she was part of that administration, too. So wh- where is this all going to take her? I mean, it's too easy to, to imagine the de- debate scenarios. And she will fall apart in the debates very quickly. 
You mean those things where people ask her questions and she has to speak off the cuff? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. She'll be, she'll be out of pocket uh, all the time. She will not help hold press conferences if she's smart. And she's a smart lady. She'll, she'll figure this out. In fact, she's already figured it out. She's already decided when she announced her candidacy. She didn't do a, a press conference. She didn't make a big speech. She instead did this video thing, right? What, what was that all about? And it was such a, such a non-impressive opening. But there it is. There it is. I, we'll, we'll be scratching our heads throughout the Hillary Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, candidacy all the way through for the next year and a half. Presuming that she'll stay in the race, I, I, I still think that there's a very good chance, a very good chance. I'm not predicting this, but I think there's a very good chance she'll be, uh, she'll decide to bow out of the race altogether. And that, my friends, uh, would be very interesting, and I would not be surprised whatsoever. But it's all about the feelings, my friends. At the end of the day, if you can't command feelings and tell people that, that you're going to be better off with them because they give you a sense of security, just like the, the sense that my, my attorney friend got from Obama, uh, like him or not, you know, he gave people this warm and fuzzy feeling. And you've got to give that to the people. And if you can't give that, you're going to lose to anybody who can give a little bit more. And that, my friends, you can see that on the Republican side very easily. Scott Walker, uh, Marco Rubio, even Ted Cruz. A lot more warm and fuzzy than Hillary Clinton. My friends, this is Barack Lurie. Thanks so much for tuning in today, and we'll talk with you real soon.